You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. Fourteen years ago, I co-founded Blogging Heads TV, which produces the podcast you're about to hear. And I'd like to ask you for some help. Blogging Heads is an independent podcast network that presents a diversity of views, including some that are well outside the mainstream, and provides a place for civil discussion between people who disagree with each other. We think this is very important at a time when political polarization is a famously big problem, and a lot of podcasts, with all due respect, sound like ideological echo chambers. If you want to help support our mission, you can make a donation by going to patreon.com slash nonzerofoundation. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash N-O-N-Z-E-R-O Foundation. The Non-Zero Foundation is the nonprofit I run that operates Blogging Heads TV and also operates Meaning of Life TV and puts out the Non-Zero newsletter. And by the way, you can get that newsletter for free by going to nonzero.org and subscribing. Now, if you don't feel like supporting our endeavors financially, we of course encourage other forms of support like rating and reviewing our podcasts on iTunes or on the podcast app of your choice, or standing on street corners singing our praises, or whatever. In any event, thanks for listening. Welcome to the Glenn Show, John McWhorter. How you doing, man? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am fine. Existing here at Brown University with the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs and with the Department of Economics, Glenn Lauer, Professor Brown, with John McWhorter, Professor at Columbia University, Humanities, Core Curriculum. He's a, he's a monster over there at Columbia. <laughs> we have a day off today, but yes. We are yeah. Glenn and John's show at thebloggingheads.tv, sometimes called The Black Guys. Uh, we are back. It's The Glenn Show. Uh, so how, you've been doing okay, John? Yeah. Yeah, it's a crowded semester, but... You know, better than better than being bored. How about you? I cannot complain. I'm uh, doing a couple of things that are really interesting. Uh, One of them is I'm teaching an undergraduate course. I'd like to actually talk to you a little bit about how that's going uh, on race and inequality in America to 110 brown, mostly juniors and seniors, a few sophomores. It's an upper level economics course, but it's not really, really economics. It's more like sociology, history and politics with a little economics thrown in. But I'm mm-hmm. taking that course. And the other thing that I'm doing, which would warm your heart as a uh, as a participant on the faculty of the core curriculum at Columbia, I am doing an independent study with a classics major here at Brown, a talented mm-hmm. young man who's also a concert pianist, uh, but he's a classics major. And I'm talking seriously reading Greek and Latin. I mean, I'm not, you know, they're not messing around, man. They're actually reading Greek mm-hmm. and they're reading Latin and they're translating the real stuff. Yeah, translating Virgil and Cicero and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, and, and it's about uh, uh, freedom of expression, hmm. uh, you know, which is what I thought we might, um, you know, kind of orient our conversation around uh, this time around. It's about freedom of expression. And so we're reading, we start with Plato, of course. Uh, we got Milton's Areo Pagitica, you know, that uh, passionate defense of uh, open publication. John Milton, we got uh, 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 Leo Strauss, a somewhat obscure philosopher, but uh, a very interesting fellow. The book is called Persecution and the Art of Writing. Uh, we've got Roger Shattuck, uh, the late Roger Shattuck, who was a, a literary guy, a French uh, literature guy, but he uh, published a book called Forbidden Knowledge, a brilliant, mm. beautiful book, a beautiful book where he ponders uh, in human mythology and literature uh, the the kind of uh, idea that there's things that should not be known. They fit, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, eat from the tree, Pandora's box, you open up in the box, uh, uh, Prometheus bringing fire, you know, uh, the the kind of, and, and, then he, and then he weaves it into a discussion of literature, you know, of, uh, for example, sexual modesty, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea that, uh, you, you know, this Emily Dickinson poem, this beautiful poem, um, a charm invest a face imperfectly beheld. The lady dare mm. not lift her veil for fear it be dispelled. Mm. But peers beyond her mesh and wishes and denies, lest interview annul a want 
that image satisfies. I think that's I think that's almost exactly it. This beautiful, but anyway, this is Shattuck on the idea that there's things that you don't reveal, the things that you know are, and and even uh, explore some of these uh, challenges around uh, you know. Uh, 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 biological research that might push to frontiers of where we think people shouldn't be doing stuff, messing with the genome, uh, atomic weapons, you know, the genie out of the bottle, you know, once they know this thing, you can't put it back in again and stuff like that. Anyway, so it's a wide ranging course that I'm doing with this young man. I'm very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Expression. <laughs> That's what I hope that we would talk about. Uh, today. I, I've been having this experience and I don't know if you have. Yeah. John, I'm I'm, I'm filibustering. I'm sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> I was just gonna. Well, I th- are you one of those people who can recite poetry from memory? That was good. Well, I couldn't do that. I, I'm not. I don't have a large repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> but if I come upon a piece that truly, truly enchants me, I may try to commit it to memory. That's interesting. I can only do that with with music, but it wouldn't be with. I'm bad at lyrics, believe it or not. But anyway. On the free speech My thing. wife, Lawan, whom you know, is a genius at this kind of thing. I mean, really? she remembers lyrics to songs in Spanish and Italian. Uh, and she's able to pretty much faithfully reproduce these lyrics. I don't know how she does it. There's I hear a- the song, I've heard the song a hundred times, and I know it's in Spanish and it's pleasant enough to listen to, but I could never, ever actually render it. And yeah, able to do that. <laughs> it's a mental. It's a mental configuration. Yeah. I worry these days about um, this issue of what you're allowed to say. In that, there is this certainty among a certain crowd that if you say certain things, you can be brutishly shouted down, just pushed off into a corner, pushed down the stairs, with the recitation of. It seems to be a collection of about 25 buzzwords or buzz phrases. And you don't even have to defend yourself. And I think that, to be charitable, I think that a lot of these people think that their basic propositions are so obvious that they don't need to be defended. And that, therefore, if you say certain things, you are Hitler. I was at a forum with my friend Stanley Fish the other day, and we were doing free speech. Oh, Stanley Stanley it was Stanley fun. Fish, man, he must be up in his 80s by now. He is. Yeah, I didn't ask him, but it, he's... Oh, no, I'm very glad to hear that he's out and about, yeah. Very out and about. He and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple of years, and it was yeah, at Cardozo yeah. Law School. And um, I see. I said, at one, as one of the people in the audience asked, why is there so much racism in the world? Why is there this hatred between groups? And I said... Well, the fundamental reason is that it would appear that human beings are hardwired for a certain xenophobia and that this made a certain sense in terms of natural selection a very long time ago, but that our job now is to resist this unfortunate natural endowment. Now, I know that there are people who insist that human beings are blank slates and that sometimes you're stepping into a bit of a muck to say something like that, but I said it roughly the way I just said it, and all of a sudden, this person who, you know, she was you know, a woman that had nothing to do with it. I would call her of a certain age and then some and white. All of a sudden is snarling and hollering from the audience at me that I should be ashamed of myself for saying that racism is hardwired into human beings because, and get this, in saying that, I'm saying that capitalism and its ills are okay, and I'm excusing the horrors of capitalism and imperialism by making that one little statement. And much to my non-surprise, a few people in this audience nodded and grunted along with her. Now, there are many ways that I can create offense. You and I are both quite familiar. But for me to make this this very commonplace observation about what Homo sapiens has been documented to be like really shouldn't have elicited this, but it was clear that this woman thought that I shouldn't say this woman, cause that makes it sound like I'm angry that she was a woman. This person thought that this screaming at me, I'm just this person sitting there and she's screaming at me. She thought of that as normal and she did not strike me as a character. She really thought she was doing her job. And so, let that, me say um, something, John. Uh, excuse me for interrupting. I mean, very, very briefly, because there's something I want to underscore about this. I mean, the most 
disturbing thing to me about the story that you just related is that she thought that the sort of scientific claim of whether or not something was hardwired, and I don't know if it's true or false, could be resolved by the political argument that Precisely. it shouldn't be so because if it were, it would have certain normative implications. That's a right. real confusion of categories there, man. <laughs> yes. I mean, basically, you just said where I was going to go, so I'm going to just finish up in saying that this is the problem, and because in our conversations I seem to have gotten this reputation as the elitist between us, I'm just going to stick with that role. What strikes <laughs> me with people like her is that her argument was weak, yet there were people in the room, luckily Stanley wasn't one of them, who thought that that was logic. The people who were using these buzzwords, you know, white supremacy, etc., almost always, in my experience, if they're speaking that lingo, the reasoning power is relatively low, and yet in modern society, educated people are trained to just roll over and pretend that that kind of stuff makes sense. And I find that that's worse now than it was 20 years ago. And it really is polluting our intellectual discourse because most people don't practically get off on being yelled at the way you and I do. It silences people. So that's something that happened to me just last week that you got me thinking about. There's a lot of stuff that's like that. <laughs> um, it would sidetrack us if I were to... Yeah, I'm thinking, for example, about these claims that the reparations advocates make about the country being built on the back of black labor. And if you were to actually try as an economist or quantitative sociologist or something like that to measure and quantify that, um, I don't think it would be nearly as extensive of a uh, claim as I mean, you'd have to do things like <laughs> compare the dietary intake of someone who was laboring as an enslaved person on a plantation in who in the owner, the, the planner, in whose interest it was to ensure that his quote chattel were well fed, to the diet of a Irish immigrant uh, worker in a sweatshop factory somewhere on the East Coast in some kind of textile mill who might be getting by on the very minimum wage because the uh, mill owner doesn't want to pay anything more than, you know, might be eating gruel, might be eating, and then you'd have to compare it, stuff like that. Um, so so the claim, it's it's a, if, if it, in a way, it's a kind of scientific claim, what on some logical accounting could be attributed to various factors of production, including the labor of enslaved persons, and you're going to get a number. Um, in effect, it's not really at all a scientific question. It's a, it's a, when one makes those assertions on behalf of, uh, of uh, moral or political positions that one has, uh, and, and to challenge them in terms of the actual logic of the claim is in effect an offense. It's offensive to do that. It's like you don't, you don't understand what we're really talking about here. Yes. We're talking about capitalism, rapacious capitalism. So. So you're not allowed to make a logical point. And I, you know, I'm talking about whether this is new. I experienced it for the first time 20 plus years ago when there was a big controversy over whether or not black English should be used as a teaching tool in classrooms for poor black kids. And I, I was genuinely naive at this point. You know, I had my cherry pop, so to speak. I said, no, it shouldn't because black English is just fine. But there are other ways of teaching poor kids how to read that have been proven since the 1960s. We don't need something so radical. And frankly, the problem with black kids in school is not that they're undone by the small differences between black and standard English. I said that the problems are due to larger societal factors. I genuinely thought that that was going to be accepted as a legitimate point and found that I was literally the only black linguist who was saying that. Because even the ones who agreed with me privately thought that their job was to stick their fist in the air and say that we must address the needs of black American children with, you know, dialect readers and translation exercises, treating black kids as if they were bilinguals. And I realized, wow, the overriding impulse is to portray black people as victims. The idea of defending black people is to portray us as victims. And that that, for everybody but me, was more important than dealing with the actual facts of what this approach would imply, the fact that it had been proven not to work much more than it had been proven to work, and all sorts of things that I was just looking at in terms of the facts of the matter. And I was in very bad odor with a lot of those people for a long time. 
And, you know, time has passed at this point. But back then, I thought, wow, there's a socio-political imperative here where we're tacitly supposed to let it override fact. Now, at the time, I thought, well, here's this black thing going on. And I started writing books like Losing the Race. It has jumped the rails lately. And it's not just black thought. It's becoming what an awful lot of people of all colors think of as morality. And I worry to death watching anybody under 25 getting indoctrinated into this idea that yelling a word is making an argument. Do you see that at Brown? Mm, Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, Fortunately, I don't see it as much in my classroom as uh, I might have seen it if I was just walking at random on the street. Uh, around Brown. I think there's some self-selection. The kids who are taking my classes may be probably less inclined in that, in that kind of direction. Um, I was reading to them uh, uh, some excerpts from the uh, platform of the Coalition for Black Lives, a kind of consortium group of Black Lives Matter activists who put something up a couple of years ago, uh, a list of demands. And, you know, the kids were raising their eyebrows a little bit at some of the you know, uh, extravagant and excessive, uh, you know, it was all on behalf of a progressive cause or the set of predictably progressive causes uh, that uh, uh, people self-consciously on the left would be embracing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a mantra. It wasn't items of faith for them. They, they were prepared to listen to me discuss them critically. Um but the thing that amazed me, though, is that uh, they they wouldn't actually uh, they they listened to me discuss them critically, but they wouldn't actually discuss them critically themselves. They just no. they just sat silently. You know, they they don't want to get mauled. They don't they don't want somebody to attack them. They feel like it would be immoral to to make sense. I think is what I did feel. the following thing in this class. The, the first topic is can we talk? I, you know, I try to put the issue on the table of self-censorship. I have an essay. I asked them to read it uh, that I published years ago on that subject. And uh, then we talk and we have the case. I used the case of Amy Wax, the notorious Amy Wax as a case. And we read some of her stuff and we discussed it. But I did the following thing. In one of the lectures I came in, I said, okay, okay. Uh, Truth or dare. Everybody in the room who voted for Donald Trump, please raise your hand. Okay, there were 100 kids in there. There were 100 kids in there. Not a single hand went up. Not a single one. And then I did the following little exercise. I said, let P be the probability that a randomly selected student at Brown's campus voted for Donald Trump. How low does P have to be (laughs) before it's more likely than not that a room with 100 students in it would not have a single Trump voter? Okay. (laughs) You, if you have a table of logarithms, you can solve that little algebra problem. It turns out that P has to be 0.003 or lower. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't believe you. There are people in the closet in this room. I simply don't believe you people. And they all laughed. But they're still not raising their hands to say. <laughs> I, I did. I thought I could get them. I, got, I, I tried to provoke them. I put up uh, 15 minutes of me and you at John, at Harvey Mansfield seminar at, at Harvard. And, oh, Lord. I, and it was me saying affirmative action is undignified for black people and is inconsistent with true equality. And it was you saying reparations have already been paid. Did you all see what happened in the 1960s? <laughs> and I said to them, I know you all don't believe that. I, I know that you have problems with that. Tell me what the problems are. And they sat there looking at each other. I got a little, little, little bit of pushback, but nobody really, really argued with me. And nobody argued in support of me either. And I know that there were people in the room who agreed with what I was saying because they come to my office hours and they tell me so. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what we live in. And it's it's sad. Like you mentioned sometimes at the beginning of this show that I teach in the core curriculum. Yeah. And I do... But it used to be that I taught in maybe a realer part of the core curriculum than I do now. There are going to be some people who are mad at me for saying that. But the tough ones, the ones that are two semesters and that really do sort of shape the Columbia students' experience in a profound way are liter- liter- literary humanities, 
and then what's called contemporary civilization. And it's the second one that I taught. We call it CC, which is basically kind of philosophy and political science and starts with Plato and ends with Fanon. And I did that four times. And it was one of the foundational experiences of my life, although it was really murder because I'm not trained in Nietzsche and Aristotle. I had to learn a lot of this from the ground up. And something happened in, I hate to say this, and I hope that nobody... No, I have to specify the year. I'm not going to name any people. But it was 2014, 2013, 14, I taught the class. Oh, yeah. A year of upheaval. Yeah. And I had the experience. And to me, it was like it was lacerating. I cannot stand it. It's the only class I've ever had where I had trouble getting the ball rolling. There was one day where 15 minutes before the class was supposed to end, and you have to keep them going for two hours. And I thought I'd learned how to do it. 15 minutes before, I just hit the ground. There was nothing more I had to ask. I couldn't think of anything else to do. The students just wouldn't talk. And the reason they wouldn't talk was partly for some chance reasons, but it's partly because the atmosphere on college campuses took a real turn that school year. That was the year of microaggressions. That was the year that you know, a certain kind of protests started breaking out everywhere, but Columbia, it seemed. And the students were afraid to say anything, partly because of two or three students who sort of made sure that, any discussion about anything that I consider interesting basically was channeled into certain truisms. And if you tried to say anything else, you were accused. And of course, nobody's using the words, but you're accused of being a racist or a sexist. That only had to happen about one and a half times. And any sensible kid in there just stopped talking. And I thought to myself, I'm not doing this again. I could tell by spring of 2014, this isn't just this class. There's a new atmosphere. And if I try to teach this, Once we get past Plato, there's no way of having a real conversation because of this new thing. So now I teach music home, which is a lot of fun, but frankly, it's easier. It's only one semester. And even there, one time we're trying to do Dvorak's um, New American Symphony, and it's a beautiful piece of work. And it was interesting but indicative that all that class wanted to talk about was cultural appropriation, that this Czech who's long dead is appropriating from, quote, unquote, Negroes and American Indians, and therefore this is a dismissible piece. And I get it. Is that really what we're supposed to be getting out of that music? What I was trying to teach. There's a new atmosphere. And it worries me because it interferes with education in that it teaches students that certain things are just not to be discussed rather than that life is complicated. It's basically teaching students that life is simpler than it is. And isn't Porgy and Bess Bess being uh, performed on Broadway now? It is, it's at the Metropolitan Opera. I'm seeing it in January. Yeah. Don't we know people who won't go and see that Gershwin masterpiece because Gershwin is, is a Jew? Yeah. And he's appropriate. <laughs> and he's appropriate. In, in effect. In effect. Riding yeah. on the backs. This is another one of those, you know, back, black people build it and y'all stole it kind of things. Riding on the backs of black people. It's our culture. It belongs to us. It was our, I mean, doesn't this have to be taken on frontally, John? I mean, come on, this is a this is so intellectually and philosophically bankrupt, shallow, superficial. It trivializes identity. It it has it lacks in any understanding of the texture of human culture and how it is that we have actually come to be the beings whom we are right now. Cultural appropriation. It's a stu- you know you own this, you own it. Suppose Europeans, Northern Europeans, were to take that seriously. Most of the modern world would be a friggin' cultural appropriation. <laughs> well, remember, it's a stupid, it's a stupid. It's infantile. John is childish. It should be frontally confronted. Well, remember, just the devil's advocate, the idea is punching up versus punching down. So it's okay for all of us to take things from Europeans, but it's wrong for them to take things from those who are in the down position. So that is the assumption that is rarely spelled out. But let's say that's the idea. I don't know if that's stupid. I don't agree with it, though. And there's no way that you're going to make that come off as a universal judgment. That's an eccentric way of thinking that certain people seem to have cooked up about 15 years ago. You're going to have to defend it. And anybody who hopes that that's going to become the rules of a society hasn't been reading, you know, enough, well, I'm not even going to get into it. But, yeah, I find it weak. I don't say, not stupid, because these people think that they're compassionate. But the idea that you're just going to be shouted down about it, it's funny. On Twitter, I take much less BS than I would expect. But 
where I can expect to really get slammed is whenever I talk about cultural appropriation somewhere, you know, the nastiest gifs. And it's funny. I think, <laughs> I think that somebody who I love very much in the media, Jackie Harry, the comic actress who became really popular on 227 as Sandra. She's absolutely hilarious. I've followed everything she does. I think she hates me. I think on Twitter she slammed me for, you know, criticizing this cultural appropriation argument. White students at Columbia, when I first got on Twitter, were very disappointed by my feelings about that, and I'm sure a lot of them stopped following me. That issue, and yet the simple thing is, it's not simple. It's not a simple issue. There are many ways of looking at it, and a lot of people have been taught that it's really just a matter of snapping your fingers and dismissing anybody who has anything, any pushback against it. It's not right. It's not educated. Okay, now you're going to have to help me. Uh, stupid may not be the right word, and you're probably right about that. Uh, it's stupidity is not really the fault here. But but you're going to have to help me because I don't get it. Um, you cannot put on a headdress unless you are a certain proportion of descent from Native American blood. Yes. A, a tribal, a tribal council has to certify your identity before you can adopt a certain mode of dress. Otherwise, yes. otherwise you're in violation of some uh, significant ethical norm. Yes. You, you, you can't cook a dish and advertise it in your restaurant uh, because of the spices that you have in it and, and the, and the mode of preparation of the food. Unless you descend from certain people? Yes. <laughs> because this is how they defend it. I heard it done with a British accent once. It made it sound better. Imitation. No. Mimesis is a form of negation. Don't you know that mimesis is a form of negation? So if mimesis is a form of negation, if you imitate these people, then you're taking away their uniqueness. And so even a white gay man is not supposed to do little gestures and intonations that imitate black women, because then you're edging in on their space. You're taking away their uniqueness. And also, if you imitate people, then you are wrong because you haven't suffered their oppression. And your oppression is a crucial facet of your very identity. I'm defending. This is how these people think. Well, so, I'll tell you what. I, I want to go further. I don't want to just imitate you. I want to ridicule you. I want to. I want to laugh at you. I, I, you know. I want. I want satirical. Uh, <laughs> if I were a talented playwright, I could imagine how this might go. But I would populate my drama with these characters who would be frontal, intended to be offensive representations of the very thing that these people despise. Uh, and and I, I would, uh, I'd satirize it because it's, it's laughable in the extreme. And at the end of the day, it's a power move, isn't it? It's telling us how to be in the world. Uh, it reifies uh, your, your cultural inheritance is your identity. You are the particular dialect of the language spoken by the people who uh, raised you up. You are uh, the uh, uh, style of music and dance and dress and, uh, 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 culinary that uh, happens to come down from the people from here. Come on, you're not that. It's an open-ended thing. We're we're still in the making. We're in the making every new day. Uh, it's a global civilization. It's not a, a pastiche of all these little monads of independent ways of being. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it's, anyway, I, I'm sorry. I'm not on board. Nobody wants, well, not nobody. Isn't this all about the fact that it's hard to be an individual, that that's not really a natural human state? What I see all this as yeah, is maybe so. these people feel the warmth of a crowd when they come up with this sort of thing. So, yes, they the, do the burden, feel. The, no, you got you got your finger on something important, I think. The burden of individual, the work of being an individual, the responsibility of being an individual, the the kind of dilemmas of being an individual, you don't, it's not scripted for you. You have to actually figure out what to do. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're a work in progress. You're not a thing given unto itself. So yeah, I, I can see that people might want to shy away from that challenge. Oh, and also here's, here's something. I am, um, it's funny, I keep bringing up Twitter and I must admit that I'm a bit of what they call a lurker on Twitter. I don't tweet a whole lot because I'm too busy with doing other things, but I do watch 
Twitter. I like to see what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) So I like to watch. And Thomas Chatterton Williams, our friend, he has his book out and it's getting talked up as it should be. And I just caught something yesterday. And those of you who are listening to this might check this out on Thomas's feed, where somebody criticized his book, everybody. (laughs) In black and white, unlearning race. Yeah, I don't. My copy is, well, I'm at home. Merv on the back from yours truly. (laughs) (laughs) I think me too, right? Didn't Uh, I say something? Well, the one I'm looking at, George Packer, Glenn Lowry, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, but you might be in here somewhere. (laughs) Whatever. Anyway, (laughs) the, um, the, um, somebody said, and it was just this chilly, acrid comment, not abusive, but just, it's like Sibelius, just like, it's somebody who said, well, reading Thomas's book, um, it's clear that what his argument is, is that he wants to be an individual who strikes out on his own and has no connections with others. You know, this idea of forging his own identity rather than this tribalist black thing. And he said that may something like that may be good for him, but it's not something that I would want to do. And I'm not sure what color the person who wrote this was. I'm not trying. This is not a me yeah. dumping on a black person. I think it was yeah. a white person. But whoever said it. What a chilly thing to think. But then I thought to myself yesterday, I was walking and reading this, and I thought, this is just it. Most people don't want to fashion an identity all by themselves. That's not how we'll talk about homo sapiens and, you know, being xenophobic. Homo sapiens starts out as tribes. We want to be brothers and fathers and sisters and cousins, and we, we know our place. That idea of what am I going to be that's different is an aspect of modernity that's always challenging. And a lot of the stuff that you and I are railing against that you call it stupid, and I'm always kind of trying to hold my breath and understand why a rational pe- person would think that way, it's tribalism. They don't want to be by themselves. It's part of why I'm not as angry at them as you often are, because I just think to myself, they're seeking the warmth of crowds. But the problem is often in doing it, they are proposing a way of thinking as the ultimate wisdom which it simply isn't. Part of the ultimate wisdom is things that require facing individuality, especially when it comes to race and fuzzy categories and progress. This is something that those people don't get. And I think that a lot of us are becoming afraid to confront them about it outside of, say, you and me having these conversations and this list of people that we're often put on this intellectual dark web. I think we're stuck on that, by the way. But that's the way we're being discussed. But that's not enough. I with that. No, I was, I want to say, Colby, I mean, this is a very rich uh, subject, I think. Um, the ethics of identity is what I would kind of call it. Anthony Appiah, the philosopher, has a book out there called The Ethics of Identity that touches on some of this stuff. Amartya Sen, the great economist and philosopher, has a book out there, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny, hmm. uh, which, which also uh, touches on this. And uh, what I'm about to say is informed by these books, but... Uh, uh, I think that, you know, we sell ourselves short when we uh, uh, accept this kind of cocoon, this kind of cozy, warm, this, the coat really fits very well. I'm home, this feeling of being home, you know, I'm, yeah, I think we sell ourselves short. We, we uh, foreclose the possibilities of certain kind of growth and, and don't fully utilize our freedom and, and, and don't explore the, the full possibilities of our human condition. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a seductive kind of trap, really. And I also think it's morally one dimensional because the real challenge is not to be who I am as if those were given things. The real challenge is to construct who I am. And that involves choice. This is a sense point in this, in this book that I admire, uh, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny, uh, Delusion, uh, Illusion of Destiny. Uh, the real ethical challenge is to weigh the relative significance of different dimensions of our multi-dimensional identities. You know, we're black, we're Christians, we're intellectuals, we're Democrats, we're gay people, we're, you know, uh, vegetarians, we're chess enthusiasts, we're American nationalists, we're, we're a lot of different things. We're not any one thing. And when the rubber hits the road, often it's a matter of about choosing. And I mean, we're also human beings. What about our transcendent humanity as an identity that, so, you know, in the 
case of an ethnic pogrom or something like that, ought to assert itself over and against our sense of tribal loyalty. I mean, tribal loyalty taking me all the way to uh, the gulag. I mean, uh, all the way to the uh, the extermination chamber, all the way to the hacking of the neighbor, you know. So anyway, uh, I think identity is interesting and complicated. I think it's interesting and complicated for black people because at some level buying into, and this is Thomas's point in this book, buying into these preset categories reproduces and reaffirms a system that we have every reason to view with, uh, with skepticism and, and caution uh, rather than to embrace it. And people seem completely unaware of the, of the ironies and, and, and sort of subtle ambiguities uh, in this thing. Uh, you know, they, they ridicule Martin Luther King, the, or at least the kind of cliche or whatever of Martin Luther King, you know, colorblind. One day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin and whatnot. And in a way, throw a baby out with the bathwater by not realizing that there really is a very, very fundamental principle at stake there. That of course, you might, might not want to uh, use it without any qualification, but you don't want to abandon it altogether. You don't want to, you don't want to become contemptuous of it or whatever. Anyway, anyway, I mean, I think there's so many dimensions. I'll just say one more thing. Uh, you talk constantly about white supremacy, about whites becoming a minority, about color of color, people of color. You, you talk about ethnic politics. You talk about racial politics all the time. How is it that you're going to keep white people from, at least some of them, thinking in those uh, similar terms? And, and what world do you create when you, you invite uh, this, this kind of uh, balkanization. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is riding on a bluff. The, the thought that I can enjoin white people from seeing solidarity in their white identities by labeling such an instinct as uh, racist and beyond the pale in virtue of history and think that I can uh, extirpate that uh, response or that reflex in that way. And, and I think that's a mistake. And you know, Glenn, it's just, it's such, it's such a shitty situation because anybody listening to you right now, almost anybody can hear the basic sense in it. And yet, you know, even me, I must admit, I've never read Sen. I have, I think Apia is a genius. I've skimmed a couple of his books. I read his articles, but I must admit that I always think this cosmopolitan yeah. mutt, and I say that with affection, oh, no. is never going to get across to the black American people I'm thinking of who simply will never hear him. And I'm thinking of about 10 college-educated black American people in and around my life right now where everything that you just said clearly is logic incarnate, but all they know is the cops. And so for them, yeah, all that sounds great, but we are constant victims of this de these depredations from the police. And if you argue against that at all, such as you and I have on a blogging heads that seem to have gotten around, where I'm even learning from you that you know murder rates of black men at the hands of the cops are not as disproportionate in terms of how many people that happens to white people too, as you as you would think. And I have now learned. I'm, glad to know that, but of course a lot of these other people wouldn't be glad to know it, will resist the data. When I try to write about this more, which I'm going to very soon with Peter Moskos, it's going to be resisted Good. because of this idea that we are eternal victims of the cops. And it gets back to what I was saying. There's a warmth in it. Now, I don't mean if somebody actually does get shot or hurt, but the idea that Someone like me walks around and, you know, I have to be careful and I have to be, you know, can't put my hands in my pockets, can't move suddenly and all of that because the cops are always thinking of me as some kind of criminal. Or a related one here in New York is that you can't get a cab. And quite frankly, I've been getting cabs in New York with no trouble for 17 years. I don't yeah. think anybody thinks that I'm South Asian or anything else. It's just not true the way it used to be. And yet black men still will say, I can't get a cab. And everybody, you know, does high fives and grunts, et cetera. It's because it makes you feel like you're part of something, it can, it, especially if the oppression that you're talking about is so minor. You know, nobody was doing this in 1950. It's a very post-1965 way of being black. And so to say that we want to forge our own identities and to listen to Thomas, for a lot of these people would be alarming. It would be chilly because you wouldn't have that hug. We've all gone through this together. 
And I think that's especially attractive to black people because of how our identities were hollowed out for so very long. But it means that someone like Thomas is always going to look to a critical mass of people as if he's a traitor. You know, you're not, you're not coming in for the group hug, you know, or you must think you're better than us. And notice that that's always the implication. It's not that you think you're different from us. It must be that you think you're better. And that's because of this quiet insecurity that I think is part of the black soul. And so they assume that he thinks he's looking down on them. And Thomas is such a mensch. You can't watch him. You can't meet him and think that he's imperious in that way. Someone might think that of me. Someone might think that of you, but you can't think of, of Thomas. You know, there's going to be people watching him, you know, there with his humble self thinking he's a snob. And it's a shame, but I don't think that what you're saying can get through. I'm going to finish with this. Identity to a lot of these people means how you define yourself against the evil white hegemony. That's identity. Not making yourself into a unique conglomeration of traits. And it's very limiting, but it can't be cut through with logic at this point. Because, And I think a lot of it is because it makes people feel good. Well, you said a lot, including you say something about a darkness of the soul, which is uh, did uh, I say that <laughs> yes. of, the, of the Negro, quote unquote. <laughs> That's how they would have put it back in the old days. <laughs> yes, there's an insecurity. Shelby Steele got this better than I think any of us really. There's a basic insecurity, and it's natural based on what happened for 350 years since 1619, but it's still there because only somebody insecure would so readily settle for an identity as somebody being pummeled down below when the pummeling has become so abstract. Think about how fragile and, 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 uh, you know, tenuous that position is. So for example, um, I, I rave about uh, shopping while black because uh, the store uh, manager is following me. Now the store has a shoplifting problem and a lot of the shoplifters are black. Of course, no one, you know, should be followed because of their race. But as a matter of reality, if there's a racial uh, uh, characteristic to the offending, there's going to be a racial characteristic to the monitoring. I mean, that that's just that's just, uh, you know, going to happen at some level. In any case, we can inveigh about it. But but the complaint about the storekeeper following me is seemingly unaware of the fact that it's predicated on another factual reality, which is the overrepresentation of blacks amongst the people who are doing the shoplifting. Uh, the cops, uh, Heather McDonald makes this point. Everybody goes ballistic, but I don't know how you get away from the logic of this point, which is that there are a lot more encounters in dangerous situations per capita between black young men and police than there are other groups. Because these young men are disproportionately involved in the commission of the offenses that attract the attention of the police. No, not every black young man is an offender. Of course not. No one said that. But inexorably, unavoidably, the fact of the matter is if you have this high racial disparity in the offending, I didn't say where the offending came from. I didn't blame anybody for it, although I would be inclined to hold the perpetrators responsible in the first instance. But Without this high rate of offending, you don't have these fraught circumstances that lead to these incidents. Um, the, 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 the people are, uh, who are making these arguments uh, are bluffing, I think, in that they're hoping that you only see the part of it, of the disparity that discredits the system, and you don't see the part of the disparity that discredits the population that is suffering under these depredations from the system. Uh, I know just by saying that some people are going to go ballistic, but I don't see how you get around it. Homicide, uh, violence in cities. If I'm a cop, that's the first thing I'm worried about. Does the person have a gun? Am I going to get shot out here? Now look at the perpetrators of that and look at how the racial breakdown of that. You think they don't know that sitting around their kitchen tables in some suburban hamlet somewhere? Hey, they full well do know it. So, uh, you know, uh, it's, the, the test score disparity, i just give one more example. The test score disparity. They think the system is racist because the black kids can't score high on the test. Mm-hmm. How many uh, notes have you gotten in your inbox that have said, 
you all won't look at the racial IQ gap, honestly, because you don't want to talk about genetics. Yep. I get a lot of them. Yeah, I get those too. What's my point? My point is not to credit a genetic argument about black inferiority. Anybody who's inclined to think that you're absolutely wrong. My, my point is that if you are calling attention to the academic disparity and you're blaming it on the system, there are other people out there who well aware of the academic disparity are going to blame it on the unfitness of the people who are on the bottom end. And uh, you can't just count on your claim, your assertion of uh, racism being the cause of everything to carry the day because it actually racism is not the cause of everything. You know, it's, that's one of those things because yes, anybody knows that in certain parts of America, most of the people who are say shoplifting are black. It's just a fact. Everybody knows it, white, black, and everything in between. But you're supposed to turn a blind eye to that and one, look at the individual episodes of cop stereotyping or, you know, overdoing the punitiveness, and there will inevitably be those. But then if somebody says, like the, the emperor, you know, with no clothes, somebody says, most of the people coming in here doing this are black, how are people not going to start looking more to young black men than to old Korean grandmothers or, frankly, even to white men? If that's a simple fact and everybody has cognitive equipment that generalizes you're simply not supposed to say it because there's this overriding imperative to identify racism. And that imperative is so overriding that it's allowed to cancel logic. And nobody puts it that way. You can imagine telling a person who thinks this way this and say, well, I didn't say that I didn't want to use logic, but still they don't because that's how they look at these things. Now you could take somebody like um, somebody, uh, Jamel Bowie, of the times, you know, who is now, you know, a listened to figure. He would say in a case like this, for example, if it's mostly black men doing the shoplifting, you have to look at the context. They're doing that in a context where their father's, you know, in yeah. jail, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is true. You know, it's not that you look at the black men all doing that and think yeah. of them as evil. Very few of them are evil. There are reasons, but still you, you're not going to ask, well, okay, quote, unquote, Jamel, as a, as a stand-in. Well, it would be interesting what he would actually answer. Yes, racism is why those black men are doing it. Nevertheless, they're still doing it disproportionately, and that means that a cop is going to look to black men more than to white men. And you can't accuse the cop of being a racist in having that bias in who he's looking at in these cases. What do you have to say to that? My experience, and this is not to single out Bowie, is that there is no answer to that. Everybody just kind of clicks their tongues and, and moves on. And that's because you're, you're beyond a certain point, you're not supposed to reason. The reason you're not supposed to reason is because of the attraction of the warmth of crowds. There's a sense of belonging that I think most people don't want to give up. And especially, this is something I've also seen among people I know very well, black people I've known very well. If you actually are a modern black person probably came of age, you know, after the 1960s. And whether you like it or not, you do have a very hybrid identity. You're what used to be called assimilated. You're very comfortable with whites. You, you play the cello or whatever. You are that kind of person to the extent that certain kinds of black people have questioned how quote unquote black you are to the extent that you have had trouble feeling like finding where you fit in, which is what everybody feels you might develop a sense of warmth in being a fellow oppressed person. So you're walking around, you're kind of hybrid, assimilated self. Who do you really belong to? Maybe you don't really feel like you belong with whites. You feel like there's a certain dissonance between you and black people. You can resolve all of that in a stroke if you have this sense that you can wrap your arms around your fellow black people. Because even if you don't all like the same kinds of music, even if one of your parents was white, even if you play the cello or what have you, what you all have is something in common. And that is that white people look down on you and oppress you and we're all in this together. That gives you a sense of click, a sense of belonging. Yeah. And that means you are not, you, that feels so good to a certain kind of person that they will ignore facts in some arguments. That is humanity. That is how a human being can work. So I'm not inclined to call them stupid. I'm inclined to call them people who don't want to be lonely, but it can be confounding what kinds of logical pretzels a person will accept 
as part of being feeling accepted. Okay, I, I, I find that to be a, a, a persuasive uh, extension and uh, correction uh, to the argument that I was making. Uh, I would say the next step then should be to attempt to def- determine when that sense of quest for belonging and a desire not to be uh, lonely uh, takes over and takes the place of reason, you know, how that can go off the rails. That can go bad in, in, in some very serious ways, right? I mean, you can get uh, a madness of crowds out of that kind of thing. But uh, John, I have to apologize because unfortunately I have an appointment that I need to try to get myself to. And I want to make a, a statement to our uh, viewership. We're going to have to lead, lead them on, aren't we? Yeah, go well, ahead. Well, because we said the last time we were on that we had this blockbuster hot topic that we were going to discuss. Uh, yeah. And we couldn't wait to hear it. And we never got around to it. And even some of the people in the comments section asked where where, where we talked about our hot topic. And um, I, I just want to uh, uh, indicate that there are, uh, you know, uh, sources of information that, you, you know, you don't know whether, you know, you, conspiracy theory, uh, you know, you don't you don't know what to say about it. You don't know quite quite how to handle it. And you and I came across something and we did and we decided that we didn't really want to go for it and talk about it publicly. And the thing is, I can't say anything more about it than what I've just said without actually talking about it publicly. We both saw a cultural production that struck us as uh, interesting and in some ways important. Uh, but because the source of it had uh, a political connotation and identity that would have caused our viewership to think that we were consorting with the wrong types of people, we just decided we didn't want to talk about it. And so I want to acknowledge that we're not talking about what the, we said we were going to talk about, even though I can't tell you what it was that we were going to talk about. And it is so hot. But, yeah, we've been having some problems with this. And we've had some very sensitive and complicated discussions. And I think we've decided that the nature of it is that at this point, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it under wraps. And can you imagine how this sounds to them? It's like we're teasing. Them. Yeah. Like, no, Let really, me give you an analogy. It would be like uh, a sighting of a UFO. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> it's especially, like especially, especially kind of uh sexy sighting of a UFO, you know, where beings came down from the vehicle, they reached <laughs> out their heads and they said something and then they disappeared into the sky at the speed of light. And we actually saw it. We saw the UFO. And we really did see it. We saw yeah. it with our own eyes, and it really was there. <laughs> but if I go and tell somebody that I saw a UFO, man, they're never going to speak up me again. They're not going to take me seriously. I will be a laughing stock. And it's a little it really bit is like that. <laughs> you know, one day, Glenn, tell me if I shouldn't say this. We can't even have said all this without saying it. One day, almost certainly, we will have to string some of this out. Yeah, but I, I, I think, think we need to give it some time, and you'll all understand why when we 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 let it drop. But it's like a UFO. Yeah, John, thanks again. We've uh, put another show in the can. I appreciate your co- co- uh, collaboration and cooperation, <laughs> and uh, good luck to you. Rest of the day, I got to sign off. Take care. You too.